This morning I have one concern and one question. What if we're too nice? What if our spiritual maturity and growth is being hindered because we're so nice? I feel the nice people in the room are nervous and the jerks are like, let's go. Let's go, baby. Gloves come off. This is it. I've been waiting for it. We are going to continue our plate-spinning Icarus flight through John chapter 5. Remember last week we started Icarus. His wings were made of wax. If he flew too close to the sun, they melted and we're going to fly close to the sun today. And remember those vaudeville shows where you spin plates? We got some plates we're still spinning this week. I want to be very clear at the outset. I run the risk of being, when I say we're being too nice, that is not an invitation to destroy people. That is not an invitation to be, I knew it, finally, I get to be the real me. Here's what I've been thinking all these years. It might be, that might, that might be what happens. But I, I don't know if you know this, Paul, in the New Testament, he's listing out fruits of the Spirit. He does not list nice. So many of us are hiding behind Jesus with the nice flag. What can that look like? looks like a lot of things. It can look as little as not stirring up conflict. Oh, I don't want to be honest here because... There's going to be so much conflict if I am. That can look really little, right? How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. And you're not fine. But you don't say that because why? Well, it's going to stir up some conflict. That can also look like you're around the dinner table and your uncle shares his latest findings from the internet, starts sharing inappropriate things about the world, and you just stare at your plate. If I just say something, it's going to make it worse. I don't make the rules. Keep that in mind. I do not make the rules. But this is how church works. It's how most relationships work. We start with pseudo-relationship. We know each other. We like each other. It's fine. It's great. We have similar interests. Pseudo-relationship, though, doesn't last long. Eventually, we encounter conflict, at which point we are faced with a choice. Should we go back to pseudo-relationship? Or do we go deeper into real relationship? This is church, folks. There are so many churches full of people who bumped into conflict and then just went to another church. It's like, ah, surely this church will be better. And they're there for a little bit. They bump into it again. And they just keep bouncing around and around. This problem is getting exacerbated with how isolated we're getting. Since the 1960s, American culture has getting more and more isolated. And as that's been happening, the church has just been following those cultural trends as well. And so now when you come to church, 
we're all walking on eggshells because like I can't say anything because I don't want people to leave because they have so many options and ah. Conflict does not work against discipleship. Conflict is not antithetical to the way of Jesus. This morning, we are going to look at a passage that speaks directly to this, where Jesus kicks the hornet's nest. He steps into conflict. He creates conflict, walks right into it. And as we, people who fear conflict, watch, it expands our imagination. We don't have to live in fear. That's the hornet's nest Jesus kicks. There's a lot of fear, and Jesus goes, let's not be afraid. And then he runs into the buzzsaw of fear. And as we watch... It starts to help us see, wait a minute. Maybe there's other options here. Maybe I don't have to just, you know, turn off, lock my heart in a very safe box and just never really show up as myself. Maybe there's another way to navigate this. Instead of spending my life avoiding conflict, maybe there's a way through that conflict. Maybe Jesus is in the conflict and maybe he's ahead of the conflict. So we're going to be looking at a passage that has a great reversal in it. It starts with Jesus encountering a man who's suffering. And at the end of that encounter, the man is no longer suffering, but Jesus is. So it starts, Jesus isn't suffering. He sees someone who is suffering. Jesus changes that. And then the backlash Jesus heals a man who had been suffering since 1985. That was 38 years ago. This man had been suffering 38 years. When there was U2 and Blondie. Music still on MTV. It's still there. We're still going to do it until you all get it. But it was 1985. 38 years. He's suffering. He heals a guy. And, and, and then the guy's walking around. And people are like, amazing. So cool. You were sick how long? And you go, holy cow. They're like, hey man, you can't carry a mat on the Sabbath. That's not okay. And we're like, what? What's happening here? Why is that the response? But then the man is faced with a choice. Heads will roll. Is it going to be my head? And the guy's like, "Mm -mm, uh, Jesus told me to do this. And then it says that they started persecuting Jesus. And we back the truck up and we see... There's great intention in Jesus doing this. He didn't have to do this. This man had been suffering 38 years. Jesus could have easily said, hey, hey, come back tomorrow. Well, not come back. I mean, you can't go. I'll come back tomorrow. And I'm going to heal you. If I did it today, people, they would get mad. Oh, they have so very much power. They are the most powerful people you know. They have had a lot of power in this church. There was, there, was a, there was a time where we were talking about rearranging the chairs. We were going to put them in a semicircle so everyone could see each other. And someone said to me, oh, we shouldn't do that. Why? Yeah, they're not going to like it. What do you mean? 
Well, they're going to think we're like, we don't value the Bible if we put chairs in a semicircle. What? Yeah, they're not going to like it. Who are they? And why do they have so much power? And it's not just in church. If you look up, there's an interview from 1983. David Bowie is being interviewed by MTV. And he's challenging them. He's like, how come we don't play more music from black artists? And it's astonishing what MTV says. They're like, you, you, you should read our mail. There's some kid, you know, Danny Bonaducci in upstate New York. He doesn't want to see this. And Bowie calls it out. He's like, well, that feels like you're blaming someone. And that teenager in upstate New York sure does have a lot of power. The name for that is called catering to the least common denominator. That's what we're doing when we avoid conflict. We are catering to the least common denominator. And we tell ourselves, no, we're being nice. We're being Christian. I don't want to mess things up. And Jesus is saying, no more. Let's walk into it. You ready? Are you ready? I take your silence as overwhelming enthusiasm. We're going to learn how to navigate conflict. Jesus gives two, two rules, two basic principles that can help us navigate conflict and meet him in new ways where we never would have before. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 16. Love results may vary. Love results may vary. You ready? All right, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. When I'm trying to get in, someone else goes in ahead of me. Just pause for a second. This is a classic case of trusting the devil you know. 38 years, this guy has been waiting to get in a pool that he believes is going to make him well. That is not, he didn't find that teaching in the Old Testament. Like, that's just like, this pool is going to make me well. 38 years. Certainly he could have sneaked in one of those days. That's, that's thousands and thousands of days. But he's like, I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to keep trying. Why? Because we trust the devil we know. What happens day one that Jesus shows up? Keep reading. What happens day one? Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once, at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. Important commentary. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, uh, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, uh, the, 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 the man who made me well, he said to me, pick up your mat and walk. Sounds like Eden, right? The woman you gave me. So they asked him, who, who is this fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walk? The man who was healed had no idea it was Jesus, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, 
you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. He tattled. Nobody likes a snitch. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. This is the word of the Lord. God, we fear conflict. We fear conflict because we wrongly believe that that is something beyond your control. That we will lose your care when we step into conflict. That perhaps conflict might mean that you are displeased with us. God, give us the courage to see a Jesus who steps into conflict to serve others and give us the courage then to follow him. I ask all these things in his name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. You can have a seat. Now, like we talked about last week, I have given my life to a discipline that's called biblical theology. Biblical theology is probably the worst name for a discipline because it sounds like something every pastor should do, right? Shouldn't all our thoughts about God be biblical? Like, what are you talking about? Here's what biblical theology is and does, though. Biblical theology finds themes in the hyperlinks of Scripture. So what we do in biblical theology is we take one text and we compare it to another text. So if you've ever heard, there's a very popular podcast that we love around here. It's called The Bible Project. They do this a lot with Genesis. So they'll hold up the book of Genesis and be like, hey, how does Genesis sound like the book of Joshua? How, does, how, how are they similar? Oh, now that we see some Genesis themes in Joshua, that helps us understand Joshua. So you can do this in the Bible. That's what we do. We just compare. Last week we did it with Job and the suffering. And we see, oh, okay, suffering is very nuanced and difficult. Here we go. We're going to do it again this week, this time though with John chapter 5, the passage we read, and John chapter 9. When we compare John chapter 5 and John chapter 9, we start to see there's way more going on here than what originally meets the eye. Here's what's happening in this passage. Jesus heals a man who was suffering because he sinned. Hang on. He does so. The man then betrays Jesus. Because he doesn't want to keep suffering. He knows, okay, I've been healed by Jesus. If I then go and tell them that Jesus healed me, I'm going to suffer. I don't want to do that. And so he makes Jesus suffer instead. Now, remember I said we're spinning plates? If it trips you up, me saying this man is sinning because he suffered, please go back and listen to last week. Please, 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 please. If you're suffering right now, see, I knew it. God is mad at me. Go back and listen last week. We suffer because there's evil in the world and the world doesn't work as it should. And our default is to be like, what did I do? What did I do? What did I do? Go back and listen to last week. This man, though, is suffering because he did something wrong. Now, we have no idea what that means. It could be maybe he, you know, was drinking too much and crashed his chariot. We have no idea. But his suffering somehow is a consequence of his behavior. Where do I get that? It's in comparing John chapter 5 and John chapter 9. Those two instances, Jesus heals somebody and the stories are identical except for a few details. Let me just list them out for you. In in John 9, Jesus heals a blind man. John 5, he heals a lame man. So in John 5, here's what happens. We have the history described. Same in John 9. History is described. In both situations, Jesus takes initiative. In both situations, there's a pool which is believed to have healing power. Now, the Bible is not saying that the pool has healing power. It clearly does not because the guy was there 38 years. It is just climbing into the world it lived in and not offering commentary on everything. 
Then, after we get beyond the pool, Jesus heals both men on the Sabbath, after which the religious leaders accuse Jesus of violating the Sabbath. Uh, in John chapter 5, the religious leaders ask who healed him. In John chapter 9, it's the Pharisees who ask who healed him. Neither man knows where or who Jesus is. Jesus finds the person and invites belief. Now, here's what's different. In John chapter 5, there is an implied guilt that the suffering and guilt are related. In John chapter 9, it's clearly rejected. It's very popular. The disciples encounter this man in John chapter 9. They're like, who sinned, his parents or him? And Jesus is like, nobody. I believe part of the reason they're asking this is because they encountered this guy in John chapter 5. Now, here's also where it's different. After Jesus invites belief, the man in John chapter 5 tells the religious leaders, but in John chapter 9, the religious leaders cast the man out. See what's happening here? And then Jesus talks about how what he's doing is deeply identified and connected to the Father. Here's what's happening. Jesus heals suffering people, and unfortunately, there's an invitation for more suffering. People don't like it. And we read this and we're like, what in the world? This seems bananas. This person had been suffering for 38 years, and they're not like, yes. And they're also not like curious, like, what in the world? Why is that the case? What's happening? We had to remember, these people are experiencing genocide. They are experiencing Roman occupation, unlike which they had never seen before in their history. It was evil and terrible. And their solution for getting out of Roman occupation was keeping Torah with great zeal. A guy's made better. We're so locked on to that goal. We're not like, hooray. We're like, dude, what are you doing? Put that mat down. Put that down. You're going to get us all in trouble here. We've got to keep Torah so we can get the Romans out of here. They weren't keeping Torah so they'd go to heaven when they die. Jews in the first century just assumed they were going to heaven when they die. Of course we're going to heaven when we die. We're God's chosen people. What are you talking about? They're trying to end Roman occupation, and this person's working against it. Another name for what's beneath the surface there? Fear. Don't rock the boat. God's not going to take care of us here. We've got we've to really work hard. And so the man encounters that fear. Both men encounter that fear. And one takes on the suffering himself. He gets cast out. And the other says, the one we're looking at today goes, uh, check please. And there's two things I think we can really understand about this when it comes to when we face our own conflict. When it comes to parents navigating conflict with adult children, hello, right? That's, a, that's hard. For the parents, they're experiencing someone who has far less experience than them, who knows everything. And for the adult children, it's like, just let me be. That's conflict. What are we going to do? We're just going to, mm, mm, mm. I'm not going to say anything because if I say something, it's going to, We start to see Jesus knows that he is walking through a minefield. And what does he do? He grabs a pogo stick. Look at verse 1 again. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. What are you doing, man? 
You've already said in John chapter 4, prophet's not welcome in his hometown. You already know there's a lot of tension in Jerusalem from John chapter 2. Your disciples are fighting with other people. What are you doing going back? Well, he went up because it was a Jewish festival. Now, the text doesn't tell us which one, but the chapter later implies it's Sabbath. He's going up intentionally on the Sabbath, and he's going to heal somebody on the Sabbath. And he doesn't just heal the person on the Sabbath. Again, this guy had been sick for how long? 38 years. He could have just said, you know, one more day is not going to really change much, bro. But he doesn't. He intentionally, with purpose and intention, heals him on the Sabbath. Not only that, though, he says this. He doesn't just say, hey, get up. And by the way, leave your mat because some rabbinic traditions translate Jeremiah 17, 20 through 21 saying don't carry a load. It's like don't carry your mat. So just leave your mat here. Come back and get it tomorrow. It's actually pretty gross. You just get a new mat, man. You lie on 38 years, you know. We can get a new fresh start here. Just leave your mat. We don't want to upset anything. No, what does he say? It's very clear. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. Jesus understood the cultural religious landscape of his day. He knew what he was doing. He went to Jerusalem with intention. He healed the guy on the Sabbath with intention. And he told him to pick up his mat and walk with intention. He is drop kicking the hornet's nest. He's not staring at his plate. He's not staring at his shoes. He's looking right at it. And as disciples of Jesus, the invitation for us is to tell the truth. Tell the truth. It's a spiritual discipline for me. It's a new spiritual practice. When people are like, how are you? I'm not just going to be like, fine, when I'm suffering. I'm trying to pause in that moment and not bury conflict. That's a little, that's conflict. It's little though. Because there's a voice in my head. It's like, ah, you're going to overwhelm people. It's too much. So then what happens though? I end up staying in pseudo relationship with people. The invitation for vulnerability is conflict. There's risk there. If I step out, if I share what's really going on, I may be rejected. I may just be looking at a blank stare of someone being like, I was just asking how you are. I, what's happening? It's a risk. I'm not saying that we just lose all boundaries and we share inappropriately with people, but we practice telling the truth. Because in little ways. I was recently in a situation where I was with people and there was conflict in the room. There were broken relationships. And I had to practice something in the room. And it's, again, it's small, but it's a way to not minimize conflict. People said to me, it's so good to see you. Now, that's a very polite thing to say. But I had a lot of anxiety actually about seeing these people because there's conflict, there's unresolved tension. And I don't want to just go, great to see you too. It's not true. It's not true. And in a small way, we need to find ways where we're not minimizing conflict and catering to the least common denominator. Do you know what happens when we cater to the least common denominator? When we give they all the power? Guess who steps into the driver's seat? Immaturity. Immaturity is driving things. And fear, our own fear, puts immaturity in the driver's seat. That's not Christianity. Jesus had a lot of outs. 
Nobody would have faulted him for healing the guy the next day. Nobody would have faulted him for not inviting him to pick up his mat. But Jesus is saying, I'm not going to fake peace here. This is a very fearful environment. We're going to step on some of those fears. Now, let's go back to spinning some of these plates. The jerk's in the room. Well, I know that I'm just talking to the jerks you might know. There's no jerks in the room. Those of us who are like, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to tell people like it is. Please keep in mind the structure of John chapter 5. John chapter 1, or excuse me, John chapter 3, Jesus comes in and sees there's lots of disabled people, and he, and he highlights one. What's happening here? We see Jesus who is well, he's healthy, and he meets someone who's suffering. John chapter 16, or, 15, or John chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, the man went away healthy and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who made him well, so he's well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. Now we have in John chapter 16, Jesus is being persecuted. He's experiencing pain. He's suffering. And the man is well. You hear the exchange there? Jesus is not stepping into the conflict to serve himself. And another thing about kids these days. That's not what he's doing. But he's saying, I'm not going to be in a situation where we fake peace. I'm going to really call things out. Because that's kind. Now, this is where John Calvin's advice is very helpful. We need to know thyself. There are so many times when we're ready, we're locked and loaded, we're ready to call out evil. The laws of God's kingdom have been broken, and we're judge dread. We're ready to straighten everything out. Take a breath. Sometimes we're more upset that the laws of our own kingdom have been broken, not the laws of God's kingdom. This is not a license to just smash heads, kick butt, and take names. This is an invitation to tell the truth, to get rid of the veneer of peace faking. Tell the truth. Is it true what I'm about to say? Or do I just feel really strongly because I'm annoyed? It's very different. Those are worlds apart. Worlds apart. And when we, when we do start telling the truth, oh, it's so awkward. It's very awkward. And we have to be encouraged by something that we see in this passage. Nobody bats a thousand. What does that mean? If you bat a thousand in baseball, you've hit every pitch. Nobody's ever done that. Does anyone know who came closest to it? There we go. Ted Williams. And what did he hit? 400. 417. 424. 4 Thank you, Sam. 424. What does that mean? Essentially, out of every 10 pitches, he hit about four of them. And that's like a record. What does that mean? We can't be surprised when not everybody likes us. We can't be surprised when not everybody understands us. Jesus had 12 disciples, and he didn't even win all of his disciples. One of them betrayed him. Jesus healed a lot of people, lots of people, and not all of them responded with faith and giving their allegiance to Jesus. This man is one of them. Look again with me here. The, the, the Pharisees, they come with him. They, they come to this man. 
And by the, excuse me, the religious leaders in verse 10, it's Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. Think about the insanity of that for a second. He's suffering for 38 years, and they're like, you, you, you shouldn't be carrying your mat. But also think about the insanity of this. Are they, do they sound like a life-giving voice in his life? No. Somebody just healed you after 38 years of suffering. And then someone rushes in and be like, uh, I don't like how you're carrying your mat. And you go, okay, what do I need to do? What? And the principle here is we can't argue someone out of something they were never argued into. Fear still rules the day for this man. His master is still fear. And the religious leaders were scaring him. You're going to get in trouble. And he goes, how do I avoid this? I know. I know how to do this. I will blame. Verse 11. The man who made me well, he said to me, pick up your mat and walk. That sounds an awful lot like the exchange that happened in the Garden of Eden. Who told you to eat the fruit? Oh, the woman you gave me. Well, who told you? Well, the snake. Blame. Why? Because fear. Fear is ruling the day here. Fear that God won't rescue us from this terrible situation led to let's just fall in line. And now we've fallen out of line. And the message is God's not here. But Jesus wasn't in on any of that conflict. He's the one, he's creating it and it created fear. Just because we're experiencing conflict doesn't mean that we're experiencing God's displeasure. Just because you're misunderstood, your parents don't get it, you're losing friends, does not mean the God of the universe is on their side. I got advice as a young man and it like worked its way deep into me. It's like, well, if everyone has a problem with you, you might be the problem. And that might be true. There's like wisdom in that for sure. But there are some times when everyone has a problem with us. And it might not be us. And Jesus is saying, we cannot be surprised when we're misunderstood. This man betrayed him. He tattled on him. Jesus, in verse 14, it, verse 14 is very, it, it opens up a can of worms and it's awkward. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said, stop, you're well, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now, I don't read that passage and hear like Jesus is like, a, like an after-school bully, like grabbing the kid and slamming him into his locker and being like, you know, you thought that was bad. You know, those 38 years were bad. Stop, stop tattling on me or I'm going to beat you up. I don't think that's what's happening here. I don't think he's threatening him. I think he's warning him. He's saying something worse will happen to you. Well, what's worse than being disabled for 38 years? The only thing you own is a mat. And you're in, you're in a culture that has no social safety net whatsoever. And you're, you're sitting by a pool because you believe an angel comes into the pool and stirs it up and you're trying to get there first and you never can. What could be worse than that? Rejecting the Son of God and facing a Christless eternity. Jesus is inviting belief. He's saying, hey, I've made you well. Don't go on this path. It's an invitation. Remember, we've talked about in here that Jesus is committing himself to people. And this creates a lot of tension. Jesus commits himself to Nicodemus in John 3. He commits himself to the, the woman at the well. He commits himself to this official. And now he commits himself to someone who's not committed to him. That's not saying this guy's saved. But we're seeing an invitation here. 
Jesus is like, hey, I've healed you. You, you didn't deserve that. You don't even understand what's going on. I'm for you. And there's an invitation. Believe. Trust me. D- turn your back on this fear. What happens? It's so much easier to stick with the devil we know. So much easier. This guy's 38 years of suffering was undone in an instant, and that wasn't enough for him to be like, yeah, let's try something new. Let's go about this a little differently. So that's the beauty of what's happening. It's very sad how this man responded. But the beauty is when we encounter conflict, we think there's only two options. I either bury myself, shut down, or I come in swinging. Right? So somebody has said something I found hurtful. I either, all right, you know what? Something hurtful back. I'm going to volley back on that one. I see that, I'll raise you. That's one option. The other option is, it's fine, it's fine. Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. (laughs) Suffering for the kingdom. And Jesus comes along and says, there's actually other options. This is why I'm not really worried about artificial intelligence. You may remember a few years ago, uh, a computer powered by AI beat the grandmaster of the game Go. Go is a very ancient game. It's like 3,500 years old. It involves flipping tiles. And they built a computer to learn Go. And Go beat the best human at Go. And everyone's like, ah, freaking out. But there's a great message in there. As the game was unfolding, it came down to move 37. Move 37 is crucial. The Grandmaster will determine, is the AI going to play a defensive game or an offensive game? And move 37 will tell us which way. So if they move this way, mm, we're going defense. But if they move this way, oh, they're going, they're going offense. And the Grandmaster will know. So he's watching intently. What does the computer do? It picks a tile way out in the corner and moves that. The Grandmaster gets up, leaves the room furious. Not because the game had glitched, but because the computer, just studying the fundamental rules, X's and O's, ones and zeros, just studying that, had thought of something that 3,500 years of players had never thought of. And it was just by the, doing the fundamentals. Just wrote this, then that, this, then that. We had become stuck in, well, this is how you play the game. This is how you do it. But now there's a new way of doing it, and it broadens our imagination. We get stuck in conflict because we think, this is it. Either everybody's going to leave me if I say what's really on my mind, or i got to bury it. And Jesus comes along and says, or there's another option. He expands. That's why we need revelation. We determine what's good and what's bad, under the sun, based on our own experience, our emotions, what we've read, and we think this is it. And God enters the picture and says, or there's another way. There's something else. And Jesus is modeling this to us. He's saying, hey, this is a fear-based system. I'm going to call it out. And it's not going to go well. Later on in John chapter 5, it says, from this point on, the religious leaders were plotting to kill him. And we're like, well, I'm not speaking up at Thanksgiving if this is what happens. Why? Because Jesus clearly said, no one takes my life from me. 
I lay it down. While Jesus' death is very sad and tragic, there can be no resurrection without death. And so Jesus provokes his own death regularly in the Gospel of John. He's Icarus on the sun. He's like, come on. And we're like, what's happening? And he brings about a change that has changed everything. And it's a goodness beyond what we've even known possible. Because he stepped into conflict. Didn't shy away from it. This passage actually is a preview of what, where the gospel is going. Just like Jesus exchanged with the suffering man. He said, you're suffering, I'll take on your suffering. He's going to exchange with us. You're isolated from God. You're not in his presence. I'll take that isolation. I'll experience that to bring you in. I'll experience the wrath of God on the cross so that you can experience his delight. All because he didn't fear when it came to conflict. Not only is God in the suffering, he's using the suffering to provide a way out of suffering. When you're in your 20s, you believe you can change the world. When you're in your 30s, you're depressed because you learn you probably can't change the world. When you're in your 40s, I'm told, you start to recover from that depression of I can't change the world to I may not be able to change the world, but I can change my world. Your world and my world, it's not fair, we didn't write the rules, has conflict. There are things we are afraid of happening. I have things where I'm like, oh, please, don't go there, don't go there, don't say this, don't say that. Ah. And we believe that if that happens, the worst thing ever will happen to us. We'll be alone, we'll be misunderstood, we'll be rejected. And Jesus is saying, I can use conflict for your good. And it can be daunting, like, what is that actually going to look like? But if conflict can change the world by Jesus, us stepping into conflict can change our world. There are massive challenges and problems that are too overwhelming for you, and that's why you doomsday scroll. Like, I can't fix this. And so you just keep scrolling, hoping somebody else might. We can't change that. And that's part of the reason it's hard. But we can change our world. I want to just tell you a story that Robert Putnam told about two men who changed their worlds, and it has a ripple effect. Before October 29th, 1997, John Lambert and Andy Boshma knew each other only through their local bowling league at Yipsy Arbor Lanes in Yipsilani. Am I saying that, Michigan? What is it? Ypsilanti. You heard it here first, folks. Ypsilanti, Michigan. It sounds lovely. I'm sure it's a beautiful place. A 64-year-old retired employee of the University of Michigan Hospital, he had been on a kidney transplant waiting list for three years when Boshma, a 33-year-old accountant, learned casually of Lambert's need and unexpectedly approached him to offer to donate one of his own kidneys. Andy saw something in me that others don't, said Lambert. When we were in the hospital, Andy said to me, John, 
I really like you and, ha- uh, and have a lot of respect for you. I wouldn't hesitate to do this all over again. I got choked up. Boshman returned the feeling. I, I obviously feel a kinship with Lambert. I cared about him before. Now I'm really rooting for him. This story, moving as it is, takes on new depth when the photograph accompanying this report in the Ann Arbor News reveals that in addition to their differences in profession and generation, Boshma is white and Lambert is African-American. That they bowled together made all the difference. In small ways like this and in larger ways, we too can change things through reconnecting with one another. Now, did this fix the world? No. George Floyd still happened. It doesn't fix the world, but it fixed an aspect of their world. We fear conflict because we think it's going to destroy our world. Jesus is saying, if you trust me, I'm in it with you. And we can change your world. We may be misunderstood. We may not get results that we want. But the one who matters sees. The one who matters sees. And he's saying to us, come on in. I'm ahead of you. I've already been here. You can trust me. I see. Will we trust that he sees? This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.